Hey everyone, this is Pastor Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in and listening to our sermon from Connection Church in Lead. And I wanted to encourage you, while listening to a sermon online can be very helpful and edifying, and we do appreciate you listening, if you're not connected into a local body of believers, I would encourage you to do so. We, we are commanded not to neglect the gathering together. So find a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church where you can submit to the elders and fellowship there. If you don't have a church home and you are in the Leeds, South Dakota area, feel free to join us. We would love to come have you join us and worship with us. With that said, thank you and enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning again. I'm so glad that you have come out to worship God with us. It is a beautiful thing to be able to gather together on the Lord's Day, to worship Him through song, through the learning of truths, through even the teaching of our children. We will gather around the Lord's table this morning, and then we will adjourn and we'll gather again to observe the other ordinance of the church. You know, we often observe the ordinance or the sacrament of communion, the Lord's table. We try to do that roughly every other week here. But uh, it's a little bit more rare that we get to observe the ordinance of baptism. So I'm very excited for that. These are ways that we worship God. Well, we are now moving into a time of worshiping God through the reading of his word and through hearing it preached. Well, a few weeks ago, we wrapped up our study through the gospel of Matthew. We'd been in Matthew for quite a while, a couple of years, and we worked verse by verse through the book of Matthew. And we wrapped it up. And so we had a few weeks where we covered a different, a couple different topics, a few different things. We addressed a few different passages of Scripture. But now we are moving in and we're diving into the study of our next book of the Bible that we're going through. We are going to be working verse by verse through the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul's written letter to the church in Ephesus. So perhaps this might be a good reminder a good time to remind ourselves why we work verse by verse through books of the Bible. Yes, we we take time off and we address different things, different passages. Sometimes we might jump into a psalm for encouragement or Proverbs for wisdom or elsewhere to address specific things. But for the most part, we work verse by verse through books of the Bible. The reason that I preach this way, the reason that we do this as a church, is because we don't want to skip over anything. Inevitably, it doesn't matter how good of a preacher you are, inevitably, if you're just picking out different topics, you're going to hit certain things really heavy and you're going to neglect other things. It doesn't matter who you are, and this is not intentional either, but inevitably, if I were to just pick out different topics, you guys would probably go, Jonathan, stop. We're sick of hearing you talk about the same thing. The genealogies aren't that cool. Genealogies are actually, actually are that cool, but I'm just saying... I would, be, uh, I would have a tendency to cover certain things over and over again and neglect other things. So we work verse by verse through books of the Bible to make sure that we cover everything that is in here. We also stay in the same book to keep in mind the context of what's happening. So as we work through the, the Gospel of Matthew, you guys got really familiar with me saying, hey... The Apostle Matthew wrote this to first century Jews, right? And he wrote this so that they would know that he is the king, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, right? Well, we kept that context in mind. We were able to follow the argument of the author. Well, this is even more important as we move into epistles, as we move into these letters. It's more important that we keep in mind, what is Paul saying? Paul wrote this letter 
So what is his argument? And we keep this in mind. We're not just pulling a verse out here or there, but we're addressing his argument as a whole. We're following the thought process that he's laying out. We must remember these epistles, the letters were read aloud to the church in its entirety. It would be like receiving a letter from an old friend to your family. And you sit around the dinner table and you take out that letter. And you go, look, kids, Uncle Joe wrote us a letter. And you read through that letter as a family, right? Well, that was what they would do in the early church. They would receive a letter from one of the apostles. Or they would receive a copy of one of the letters from another church. And they would all gather together and they would read it. And they would read it and they'd study it, right? And so they wanted to trace the argument. They wanted to understand what was being said. What is the apostle talking about? So this morning, we're going to be diving in. And, and really, this morning is going to be more of a setting the stage. We're going to learn about who Paul was. We're going to learn about the church in Ephesus. We want to understand the cultural context. We want to understand what's happening in the world at this point. So we're just going to kind of focus on the first two verses. And we're going to set the stage for this letter. So with this in mind, I'd ask the congregation to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you and we thank you for this morning. Lord, specifically, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, as we had studied over the past weeks in our Sunday school class, your word is authoritative and it's sufficient. It is authoritative because it is your word. It holds the power of you speaking, just as Christ said in Matthew, that the reading of your word is the same as hearing God speak. It's the same as hearing you speak. But it's also sufficient. Lord, this book will address many things. May we hear it, may we learn from it, may we accept it as your word, and may we grow. May we grow as people, may we grow as a church. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know that was a very long passage. I jokingly say that because it wasn't that long ago that I covered 105 verses. So two feels pretty good for me. Two feels like that's good. We're doing good. We're trying to keep it short. Well, as we open this passage, we see really this first address is dealing with who wrote this letter and who it was written to, right? That's pretty important, right? It's pretty important to know who wrote the letter and where it was written to. And so this might seem a bit redundant, but it was written by the Apostle Paul. So we must ask the question, who is Paul? Right? Like I said, this might seem a little redundant in a church, but I don't believe it is. I believe it's important that we set the stage and we understand who Paul is. Paul, as stated, is an apostle of Christ Jesus. However, any of you who know scripture know Paul had a rather sordid past. Paul was formerly known as Saul. And Saul was a great persecutor of the church. Before his conversion, he was a very zealous Jew. Uh, In fact, I believe it's in one of the letters to the Corinthians. He walks through how zealous he was as a Jew. He was a Pharisee. 
And we had a lot of dealing with the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew as we studied through that. So he was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He was very, very smart. Um, he was well-trained. He knew Scripture inside and out, front, side, and back, upside and down. But he was so zealous that as the Christians began to rise up, as Christianity began to rise, he took kind of a front role in persecuting the church. Uh, in Acts, there is the account of the stoning of Stephen. This is a very important account. It's the account of the first martyrdom. Stephen was the first one to die for the sake of Christ. He was stoned. And he gives this beautiful sermon. He preaches to the Pharisees. And it, and it gives note that a young man named Saul was there. And Saul held the coats while the other Pharisees stoned this man to death. This faithful, wonderful, godly man. And so Saul is seen as giving approval to this by holding the coat, saying, hey, I'll hold your jacket while you cave him in with stones, right? Like he's giving approval to this horrible act. It then goes on to say, Saul begins to persecute the church. He would travel from town to town and he would arrest the Christians. He got uh, uh, the right to do this from the government to say, hey, I'm going to persecute the church. I'm going to arrest Christians. So he, he began to go town to town and arrest these Christians, have them thrown in prison. Many of them were beaten. Likely, maybe some of them might have even died. We're not sure. But at very least, he was throwing the Christians in prison. He was having them beaten. He was hunting them. And the early church knew this. And we know this because like, he, he was very infamous in the early church because of how he was converted. Saul was converted on the road with written papers from the Jewish authorities to persecute the church. And how his conversion happened? It's a very wonderful story. You should just read through the gospel, or through the, uh, the the Acts of the Apostles. He's going down the road on horseback, and Christ appears to him as a blinding light. This light is so bright that it knocks him from his mount. He falls from his mount. He falls to the ground. And he goes, "Who who are you, Lord?" Because Christ had called to him from the light. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul would later go on to say that Christ said to him, does it hurt you? Does it pain you to kick against the goads? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you persecute. There's an infamous story. He's blind from then on until he gets to the city. His companions take him to the city and he waits there, and God sends a, a faithful Christian man to him. Saul's eyes are healed. He, he then goes with this man to the leadership of the church, and, and, and the church is nervous. Right? They're nervous about this guy. This is the guy who persecuted the church. Can we really accept him? Like, we better make sure he's actually converted, because this might be a trick. Right? And so, so all in all, everything works out. Paul is commissioned, you know, his name is then changed to Paul. He's commissioned as an apostle by Christ in the same moment that he's converted. And as the gospel goes out, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So he is the apostle to the non-Jews. And he begins to go on missionary journeys and he travels all over. And he is one of, the, one of if not the greatest missionary in human history. Absolutely phenomenal story. So he is an apostle. But that brings us to the question. What is an apostle? I feel like this is a fairly common question in the church. You know, we, we hear terms so often in the church and they're rarely defined, 
right? And, and so I think sometimes we can hear terms like apostle so regularly that we kind of just gloss over them. We don't really think about, well, what, what does apostle mean? Well, apostle literally means the sent out ones, right? So, so the word had the connotation of someone being sent out. Well, there is a context in which we as Christians are all sent out, right? Like we are all commissioned to take the gospel to our communities. We are all commissioned to spread the gospel to the othermost parts of the earth, right? We are sent here in lead. But that does not mean we're all apostles. Apostles were the specific people who were meant to head up the early church. They were given as the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, in the book that we're in, Ephesians 2.20 says that the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So you see Paul is painting this picture of, of a foundation of a building, right? And the cornerstone, that chief stone that holds everything else up, that's Christ. But the rest of the foundation are the apostles. So the apostles were the specific sent out ones called directly by Christ to be the foundation of the church. So not everyone is an apostle. We know this also from Ephesians. It says, and he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. See, only some were given to be apostles. Perhaps Matthew Henry puts it best. This is a bit of a long definition, but listen to this. The apostles were prime officers in the Christian church, being extraordinary ministers appointed for a time only. They were furnished by their great Lord with extraordinary gifts and the immediate assistance of the Spirit, that they might be fitted for publishing and spreading the gospel and for the governing of the church in its infant state. The shortened definition is... The apostles were those who were handpicked by Christ himself, called by Christ to be the foundation of the church. This is why when John died, he was the last living apostle. He died, there were no more. In fact, Paul himself seems to indicate that he was the last called apostle. He says God, that Christ even appeared unto him as one untimely born, that he was the last one that Christ appeared to, to call and commission as an apostle. But then he says that he is an apostle by the will of God. And we must not pass that up. I told you a little bit about Paul's conversion to the faith. And it's clear that Paul was converted and called to be an apostle in the same moment he was commissioned by Christ. So what does this mean, that he is an apostle by the will of God? Well, it means that Paul did not call himself to this office, right? Paul did not go, hey, you know what, guys? I'm a pretty good teacher, right? Like, I'm doing a pretty good job. I, I, you know, I think I should be an apostle, right? This wasn't an internal promotion. You know, the 12 apostles... Did not get together and go, all right, Paul, you know, Peter up there talking, looking over at James and going, you know, uh, your quarterly reports have been really good. So I think we're going to we're going to elevate you up. You know, I think it's time. I think it's time. You know, you've been a preacher for a while. You've been an evangelist for a while. I think it's time we bump you up to the rank of apostle. That's not that's not how this happened. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. It was not the will of man. It was not his own will. And this this mirrors his conversion, right? Paul wasn't converted by his own will. He didn't go, you know, I'm going to this town. I'm going to persecute Christians. 
you know, I think I might join him. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea, right? Like he, he didn't, he was not converted by his own will. His will was to go there and to persecute the Christians, to throw them in prison and hopefully see them die. That was his will. He wished to see Christ and the church exterminated under the boot of the Jewish system. But God had other plans. And so God knocked him from his horse, saved him, and called him to be an apostle. He is not an apostle by the will of man, but by the will of God. So that's who Paul is. That's that's who wrote this letter. He's self-identified in this letter. But who is it written to? Well, the letter itself says it is to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So who are the Ephesians? If this is the letter of the Ephesians, who are the Ephesians? The Ephesians were the residents of the ancient city of Ephesus. Ephesus was in Asia. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a port city. It's located in modern-day Turkey. But it was a central hub. Ephesus was, was really the central trade route of that region. It was, like I said, it was a port city. It had some of the greatest silt removal in history. That's a really big deal in the ancient world because port cities don't stay port cities for very long because the silt builds up. In fact, Ephesus is no longer along the coast because the silt removal shut down. So it was, it, it was a highly technologically advanced city for the Roman Empire. It also was a hub of pagan worship. Ephesus uh, was the, the home of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And that was the temple to Diana, the goddess Diana. This was a massive tourist city because people would come from all over the world to make sacrifices and offerings to Diana. Diana was the goddess of fertility, a very popular goddess in the ancient world part of the Roman and the Greek pantheon. In fact, one of the great wonders of this was there was a statue within this temple that was supposedly so beautiful, we no longer have it, but supposedly it was such a wonderful work of marble that the rumor had spread and and the, the old wives' tale was that that fell directly from the heavens, that Diana herself sent it from the heavens to the temple. And so people would travel from all over the world to this temple to Diana. And because the city was so bustling, because it was so huge, it had a a ginormous auditorium and coliseum that sat 20,000 people. That's massive in the ancient world. Like that is a huge, huge deal. And so this was a bustling community. This was really the central region. It was a tourist area. It was a place of pagan worship. It was a place of gathering. I mean, when you have a place that can seat 20,000 people and you're the capital of a Roman province, you're a very important place. So Ephesus was a central place in this time and in this world. So how did a church start there? If this place is so dedicated to pagan worship, I think an interesting question is, how on earth did a church start in this place? This is a fascinating story. Uh, in Acts chapter 19 is the account of the planting of the church in Ephesus. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you, open with me to Acts chapter 19. This is, this is just one of the most fascinating chapters in all of Scripture to me. I, I was talking to someone about this this week, and I said, this is so interesting. And I walked them kind of through the story, and they said, you know, this would make like the best one-act play. 
It wasn't, I, I wasn't talking to Thomas. I know he's kind of the play guy. He's always, you know, he's the one who always is suggesting play ideas. But, you know, this is, there's so much drama contained within this. And it's it split into really three different movements. You have verses 1 through 10 that detail, like, the movement of God in that area. You have verses 11 through 20 where it starts to detail the miracles that God is doing in this place. And then the pagans begin attempting to replicate these miracles, but they're unable to replicate them. And then finally, the third movement, there's this massive backlash over the spread of the gospel. So I just, I want to cover these briefly to give you an idea of what this area was like. Uh, Verses 1 through 10 in Acts 19. Now it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper regions and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no. We have not even heard if the Holy Spirit is being received. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's, John's baptism. Excuse me. Then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who is coming after him. That is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. And after he entered the synagogue, he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and were not believing, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he left them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So you see, the drama is beginning to unfold. Paul goes to Ephesus while Apollos, his traveling partner, remained in Corinth. And so Paul goes to Ephesus and he finds these disciples of John the Baptist. Likely, these 12 men probably left when John was beheaded. I mean, when your leader is is murdered and you're probably next, right? Like, that's a safe assumption. So they probably left right after that. And so Paul approaches them and he asks them, what they were baptized into. And they said, well, with the baptism of John, they, they, they had not heard of everything that happened with Christ and with the church after that. They were oblivious to what happened at Pentecost. And so Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus. He then lays his hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, instantly, this should pull our minds back to Acts 2, right? This is, this is virtually a second Pentecost here. And this is a really big deal because one of the questions was, is the Holy Spirit just for us? Like, what, what about John's disciples? You know, and and so, so when these people come into faith, the same thing happens. And the Spirit gives evidence to the faith of John's disciples. And what's the very next thing they do? They begin to boldly share the gospel. The same exact thing we see the disciples do, right? The disciples in the upper room. When the Holy Spirit falls on them, they begin to share the good news and they go out and they begin to share the gospel. Well, the same thing happens here. And for two years, they are teaching daily. They start in the synagogue. There was a Jewish synagogue there and they start there, but the Jews are not happy about this. So they begin to spread rumors about the Christians and slander Paul and these followers. And so they move into a secular auditorium, probably, you know. Maybe not like this, but just picture something similar to this. They move into a secular auditorium and Paul begins to teach every single day, daily for two years. Man, can you imagine that? Every single day church for two years? That sounds great to me. But 
So they do this for two years, and the word of the Lord spreads. Verse 10 ends saying all of Asia, that entire province, had heard the word of the Lord because of what was happening at Ephesus. That's an incredible statement, right? All of Asia, that entire province, hears the word of the Lord because of what is happening there. Well, the second movement, we won't cover it in detail, but God begins to do incredible miracles in verses 11 through 20. God was using Paul and he was performing amazing miracles through him. Even pieces of his clothing would be taken to the sick and God would heal the sick from that. Well, this is a very religious place, right? This is a very religious city. And so the pagans, the Jews and the pagans begin going, how do we cash in on this? Remember, there's a pantheon of gods here, right? And so they clearly from elsewhere in scripture, we see that wherever there's a pantheon of gods, it's very easy just to take Christ and go, we can take Jesus and he can just be one of our gods, right? Maybe that's not exactly what they did here, but bear with me. I feel like this is probably what they did. Some non-Christians began to try to replicate these miracles. They began to attempt to heal people and to cast out demons in the name of Paul's God. And and this is detailed in the story of the seven sons of Sceva. This is honestly a rather humorous story within the middle of this chapter as the drama is unfolding there's this humorous section where there's these seven sons of Sceva I don't know exactly who they were they were seven men and they go and there's a demon possessed person and they go and they try and attempt to cast out the demon in the name of Paul of Jesus whom Paul preaches and infamously the demon turns to them you know this demon possessed person turns to these seven sons and says Jesus I know Paul I know, but who are you? And then this demon-possessed person beats them all, strips them naked, and chases them through town. This is a very dramatic thing. And so then the the verses begin to to carry on, and there's uh, uh, multiple instances and great massive cultural revival that starts breaking out. Again, this is a very pagan town. But this cultural revival results in people abandoning their witchcraft. And they even begin to take their books of spells and, and the witchcraft that they, that they are practicing. And they begin to burn these books. That is incredible, right? But it's even more incredible because there's a little detail that says that the, the value of the books that were burned were 50,000 pieces of silver or drachmas. 50,000 pieces of silver. I find it's helpful to contextualize this. If we were to put this into modern monetary equivalents... The revival is so strong that these people burned $2,325,000 worth of books. That's a lot of money. I know books are expensive, but still, that's a lot of money. The cultural revival is so massive in Ephesus that the former uh, practitioners of witchcraft burned $2,325,000 worth of their former books. And this brings us directly into the third movement movement of this passage. In Acts 19, I encourage you guys, just read Acts 19 when you go home. But when there's that much of a revival, the business of idolatry is clearly hurt. And there is one specific idol maker who he begins to whip up a riot. He, his business has been damaged. He goes to the other people who manufactured, who made idols 
and, and they had been so financially hurt because of the spread of the gospel that they begin to whip up a riot and they begin to seize Paul's traveling companions. And they take them into this auditorium, this 20,000 seat auditorium. And meanwhile, the people in the auditorium are chanting, Artemis of the Ephesians is great. Like that's their chant. Like so I mean, picture it, you got 20,000 people in an auditorium and they're all chanting this. Artemis of the Ephesians is great. Artemis of the Ephesians is great, right? And they're probably pounding, you know, similar to like, we will rock you, you know. And, and so they take Paul's companions in there and, and the drama is unfolding. Paul attempts to go in with them, but the Christians grab him and are holding Paul back. Like, no, they're going to kill you. Like, are you nuts? Don't go in there. They're going to kill you. And, and, and they're chanting these things and a Jewish man stands up and attempts to try and reason with the mob and he's unsuccessful. And then the town clerk basically stands up in the middle of this auditorium. The town clerk stands up and, and in essence, his statement is, look, our, God, our goddess is great. I mean, look at how beautiful her image is. Let's just forget about these stupid Christians, right? Let's just forget about these guys. They're not really going to do anything. I mean, our goddess, she fell from the heavens and she's there in the temple. And the riot is calmed and everyone's released and the gospel continues to go out. Paul leaves Ephesus, the church. He's been there at this point for three years, and the church is stable. And so he leaves Ephesus, and he continues on in his missionary journey. Well, I think just, just from the cultural context of the founding of the church in Ephesus, I think there's some really good application. I think there's some really good application just from this little snippet of Acts 19. I think we can see... Just as the church in Ephesus saw, the gospel has a cultural impact, right? The spread of the gospel makes a difference in so many ways, but one of them is it makes a cultural impact. In Ephesus, those who were selling idols, their business was so hurt that they tried to whip up a riot to murder the Christians. Like, they were monetarily affected so much by the spread of the gospel that they tried to riot well, I think in general, as we see the gospel go out, it should be clear. Those who sell idols, their business should be affected by the ministry of the gospel, right? I mean, maybe this is just a, a really good litmus test for the success of reaching a community. The businesses that are selling the idols in our community, are they affected by our gospel impact? I just, I feel like that's a good question that we as a church ought to ask. Hang on. Is lead being culturally affected by our ministry for the gospel? Because as more people worship Christ, they're going to stop worshiping other things, right? And I think this is directly applicable to us. The reason I even point this out, because... Any of you who know anything about lead know that idol worship is, in fact, thriving within lead. I mean, we have three New Age shops on Main Street that sell actual idols. There are Buddha dolls. There are New Age idols. Like, actual idolatry. Like, a lot of times we think this is relegated just to the early years of the church, right? But no, like, in our city, right here, our own town, there is a massive sale of, idol of idols, I'm not saying that we're mean. I'm not saying that we're vile or vitriol towards people. But 
this is just a good litmus test. Is this, has the sale of idols been hurt in lead because we're reaching people with the gospel? I think that's something that we as a church, as we continue, as we move on, I think that's just something that we should, we should ask ourselves. What is the cultural impact of our church? And just for a little bit of encouragement, the temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's gone. That idol that stood in that temple that was so beautiful that they said it fell from the heavens is gone. We're not even really sure what it looked like. That clerk stood up and said, our goddess is so great, who could ever beat her? It's gone. But the church stands strong. A little bit of encouragement for us as we do ask this question, hey, are we affecting the sale of idols within our town? Christ is king. No idol will ever stand. But moving on, this is the context. This is the area that Paul writes this letter to. It's a culturally impactful area. This was a central place that letters were written to. In fact, if you read the opening to Revelation, there's the, the seven letters to the seven churches. Likely, those were real letters written by John that were distributed to the churches. And it, they went from town to town. They started in Ephesus. And they were spread from there. We know from church history that many of the, of the books, the actual manuscripts that we have from Scripture were found in Ephesus. Ephesus was clearly a central area. And that's what sets this letter apart. As we dive in to study this letter, there's something you need to know about how the letter was written. Ephesians is different than Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, because Ephesians was written as a circulatory letter. Some of our manuscripts for Ephesians don't actually include the words at Ephesus. We know that it went to Ephesus first. But some of the best manuscripts don't even include that. And the reason is Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, but he wrote it specifically to be spread to the church as a whole. We know this because of the language he uses. He speaks in this letter not to specific people, not to a specific church. In this letter, he speaks to the church as a whole. He's addressing the entire church. And this is fascinating to me. This is one of the reasons I love this letter. Because, you see, when we read like a letter like 1 Corinthians that was written to the church in Corinth, we go, okay, Paul is addressing a specific issue in Corinth. Like, there are bad things happening here. He's addressing this. Okay, so now how do we apply this to us? How can we take the lesson he's trying to teach these people and apply it to us? With Ephesians, he wrote this as a letter to the church as a whole. So as we read this letter, we can go, this is not just a specific letter to just a specific group of people. We can read this as Paul's epistle to the entire church. Well, we're 2,000 years removed, but we're still part of the same church. So as we read this letter, as we study this letter, we can read it as Paul's commission to us. We are part of the same church Yes, we'll have to contextualize, but we're part of this same church. So Ephesians is six chapters, a little bit of an overview. There's three chapters of heavy theology. I mean, Paul dives into the beautiful mystery of the gospel. It's just gorgeous. I mean, how salvation occurs, the nature of salvation, who we are. 
How does this salvation affect us as people? This beautiful mystery of the gospel. And he takes three chapters and he dives in depth into this, explaining the beauty of the gospel. And then after that, there's three chapters of direct application. Here's the gospel, here's the mystery of the gospel, and here's three chapters of application. And it kind of centers on how do you live your life? But in the middle, there is a word. In chapter 4, verse 1, there is the word, therefore. That is a central word. You, you've, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the statement, whenever you come across the word, therefore, you should stop and see what it's there for. Yep, that's an old statement within church. It's a funny statement, but it's a true statement. It's a very true statement. Whenever you see the word therefore, you should stop and you should see what it's there for. So you've got three chapters of heavy theology, and then Paul says, therefore, here is how you should live. And this is beautiful to me. It's one of the central themes of the book of Ephesians is that the gospel is beautiful and therefore It should affect our lives. It should affect how we live. The gospel should have an impact on how you are a husband. The gospel should have an impact on how how you are a wife, on how you are a parent, on how you are a citizen. The gospel should have an impact on your life. And that is the central theme of Ephesians. So as we study this book over these coming months, we're going to keep that therefore in mind. And we're going to study the beauty of the gospel and what we do with it. So just a summary. Our verses say this. It's two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, well, we had addressed who Paul was. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus, not of his own will, but of the will of God. To the saints, that's such a beautiful statement, to the saints. All Christians scripturally are saints. Saint is not a special class of Christian. All Christians are saints. To the saints who are at Ephesus, we talked about the cultural context of Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. True Christians, just like they, true Christians are saints, true Christians are those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then I love this. Oftentimes we skip over these introductions, but just just listen to this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's opening words, he tells the saints, he tells the church, grace and peace to you. As Christians, those words are so dear to us. The grace of God has been bestowed to us. We are no longer in our sins. We are washed clean. We did not receive the judgment we deserved for our sin before God. We have been given grace And because of that, we have peace. We live in such a culture of hectic chaos. Think of the beauty that it is to have peace with God. We have peace from God 
our Father. God is no longer out there. We now, the saints, address him as Father. That should stir something in the heart of every Christian. And our Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me, and the Lord. Paul doesn't just say that Jesus is our Lord. He is the Lord. Christ is King. So this morning, even in this overview, I think there is clear application. I would ask each one of you, are you a saint? And I don't mean that in the cultural context of how we tend to define that. Like, oh, that person's a saint. Oh, Sarah's a saint. Right? Well, that just means Sarah's someone I like. Sarah's someone who does things I like. Sarah's someone I think is moral. Right? That's kind of the cultural view of this. My question to you is no. Are you a saint? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Is Christ Lord of your life? If the answer is yes, you are a saint. If the answer is no... And I encourage you, I implore you, I beg you to trust in Christ today. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Again, I, I pose the question, are you faithful in Christ? Paul wrote this to the saints who are faithful in Christ. Are you faithful in Christ? That does not mean are you perfect, for we know that we all sin. In 1 John, he says that anyone who says that they have not sinned is a liar and the truth is not in them. Even as Christians, yes, we sin. But are you faithful to Christ? When you sin, do you confess your sin to him? Do you turn away from it? Do you repent of it? Do you turn to Christ? Are you faithful in Christ? If you're not, if you're a Christian, if Christ is your Lord, but there is sin in your life, I implore you to turn away from it, to repent of that sin and be faithful to your Lord. If you're a Christian, Christ is your king. He is your highest allegiance He is your Lord and your Savior. Turn to Him. Grace. All Christians have experienced grace. There's that first grace in salvation, that initial grace. But I mean, the life of the Christian is filled with grace. God does not just save us. He sanctifies us. He makes us more and more like Him. And then we know eventually, someday, we'll experience eternal grace with Christ forever in heaven. What? beauty, peace with God. You can leave this morning from this opening statement of Paul to the church knowing that you are forgiven of your sin and that you have peace with God. Nothing, nothing should make us more happy than that. Nothing should bring us down. Nothing should damage that. So as we leave this morning, I encourage you to ponder those words until we meet again, ponder these words, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go from here, I pray that our impact as Christians, as a church, will have a direct impact in our community. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the power that is in those words, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, as your children, we have experienced grace, such grace, that we deserve death and punishment. 
God, we know we don't deserve anything good. We deserve wrath. But you have given us grace. You have saved us from our sins. And then you have shown us even more grace. Grace upon grace. And not abandoning us after salvation, but giving us your spirit. Strengthening us. Making us more and more like you. So Lord, may we, may we just embrace the beauty of your grace. And Lord, may we also embrace the beauty of peace before you. That we have peace. We are no longer at enmity with you. We are no longer enemies. We can call you Father. What a blessing. God, may we, your people, here in this church in Leeds, South Dakota, not take that for granted. May we live in light of the grace and peace that you have given us. And Lord, as we go from here, I pray, I pray that our passion would be just like that of the Ephesians. That our passion for the ministry of the gospel would have such an impact in this community that we would see the sale of idols flounder. Because you are the one true God. There are no others. So Lord, as we go from here, strengthen us, encourage us, uplift us as a church. May we go knowing that we have grace and peace from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close this morning, we will gather around the Lord's table. The physical representation of the grace and peace that we have with God. It is a blessing to be able to partake of the bread and the cup, the body and the blood. To be able to gather around this table and say, it is not of our works. It is not of our own merit. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. I didn't do enough to be saved. I didn't earn the right to be saved. I wasn't born better than anyone else. I'm saved by the will of God alone. So if it is your confession this morning that Christ is Lord, that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, I invite you to come and partake of the bread and the cup, of the body and the blood of Christ. That is your confession. Come this morning. I do not give you anything new 
at the consistent and constant confession of the church from its founding, that Christ Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Let us take the bread in remembrance of Christ's broken body for us. In the same manner, after the meal, he took the cup and gave it to them, saying, This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. Let us take the cup in remembrance of Christ's blood and the forgiveness of our sins. Would you stand with me and let us, who are forgiven of our sins, children of God, Sing out the doxology in praise of what has been done for us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. I leave you with these words to ponder. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May you go in that knowledge and may you return down in Spearfish for the celebration of the second sacrament, that of baptism, as we celebrate as a church. Amen.